All right. Well, I'm glad everybody survived snowpocalypse last week. Um, or maybe I should say, I can't believe we just got a dusting of snow. Why did we cancel apocalypse last week? Um, but I'm glad that I hope everybody was able to rest. Everybody was able to stay warm. Um, but before I start my sermon, I do have like the obligatory beard jokes that I always start. Um, because as we know, our own Rodney Rambo has a beard that rivals Charles Spurgeon. Uh, but I also like to, I also like to lay the foundation that there are some great preachers out there like Jonathan Edwards. Okay. Or Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, clean shaven guys, or maybe they rock the goatee or the, uh, or the mustache. Um, all good preachers, <clears throat> but I would like to thank, uh, rooted church for being an equal opportunity, facial hair preaching, uh, church, um, but um, also, Rodney does have full authority that if any time this morning I start to preach anything heretical, he will tackle me to the ground, and he will take over from my sermon. So, um, okay, anyway, uh, my name is Alex Gandy. I'm an elder, I'm an elder candidate here at Rooted Church, um, and uh, throughout the past couple of weeks, we've been studying Galatians, um, and it's a book describing the challenges of a young group of Christians um, as they faced uh, the early stages of their Christianity, um, as well as uh, facing opposition uh, within fa- from false teachers. Um, and if you were to boil down the entire book of Galatians into a theme, um, it's exactly what our sermon slide uh, graphic looks like. And I love how Gra- Rodney designed it. It's Jesus plus nothing, nothing else. Like, have you ever taken a look at what that looks like? Um, because, in other words, if because of Jesus and the new covenant, we are justified by faith and faith alone. Not by the law, not by our works, but by Jesus and nothing else. And I will have to confess that um, I was intimidated by this text. Um, I feel as though I I am completely over my head. Um, And of course, when Rodney kind of discussed the preaching schedule with me, and he's like, hey, how about um, you, why why don't you preach the first chapter or the first section of chapter three? I personally really thought nothing of it. This is just out of habit. I was like, why, sure, that sounds great. But as soon as I started digging deeper into this text, um, I immediately knew that I was swimming in the deep end of the pool. And it really reminded me of my early years of bow hunting. See, I didn't grow up a hunter, okay? Um, I'm a city slicker. I still consider myself a city slicker. uh, But I really married into this real outdoorsy family, okay? Um, So I was born and raised in St. Louis. The closest I ever got to a bow was at Boy Scouts. And I'm a Boy Scout dropout. Okay, I dropped that at Star. Still kind of regret it. Um, But I remember my father-in-law handing me this compound bow in the summer of 2012. And again, in typical Alex Gandy fashion, I was like, hey, I'll go bow hunting with you. That sounds great. All right. But I had no idea. I was completely ignoring the difficulties. Um, So, by the way, now all of you know that if you ask me to help you with something or ask me to do something, 99.9% of the time, I'm probably going to say, why, sure, that sounds great, and not know any of the details. Um, So, but regardless, as soon as I got up in that tree stand my very first fall, I quickly knew I was in over my head. I was quickly intimidated. I had no idea what to do. And I think that's precisely how the book of Galatians can make us feel as we try to understand this really highly debated book of the Bible. Sometimes we can feel intimidated. Sometimes we can feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we can feel confused. And here we have one of the more complicated chapters of Paul's writings. Um, And needless to say, um, I I think as I was sitting in a tree stand by myself trying to figure out how to bow hunt, I think sometimes when we look at scripture, sometimes we can think, where do we go with this? What do we do? Um, and this, this book, this specific Galatians in this specific chapter, it's one of those chapters that some people can quickly glaze over um, if you're looking for that quick tip on how to be a better Christian. Uh, because this, this book of the Bible and this specific chapter is not for the faint of heart. Um, but if we want to know God, if we want to know him deeper, um, I think we'll, we'll gravitate towards texts like this and even delight in texts like this. 
Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, appealing to them to remember the truths of the gospel rather than believing in false teachings. And teachers in Galatia, known as Judaizers, were pressuring the church uh, to not only observe the law, but to think that the law is an addition to Christ. Now, I know due to the inclement weather last week, Rodney wasn't able to preach from Galatians chapter 2, 15 to 21. And I think he's about to preach on that next week. Um, but I think it's so important for us to understand that we are justified by faith alone. And part of our section of scripture that we're, that we're going to get to this morning hinges on that belief and that understanding. The first section of chapter 3, specifically the section that we'll be focusing on this morning, is one of the many ways that Paul is appealing to the church in Galatia to lean upon the truths of the gospel. It is, and it's an essential history lesson, helping us focus towards the importance of faith and Paul taking us on a journey back to the Old Testament. So after that lengthy introduction, I would encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. And we're just going gonna to focus on verses 1 through 9 this morning. It says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I just really thank you for who you are this morning, uh, that you are consistent in your provision, and I thank you that you have provided the scripture to us. Um, and I, just, I pray that you would give us clarity as we study this. I pray that you would uh, hide me behind your cross um, as uh, I just preach through this text. And, and I pray that, that you would be the one that's glorified this morning. Uh, thank you for your book to the Galatian church. And I pray that you would enlighten and transform our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the first thing that stands out to me about this passage is really the number of questions that are contained within it versus the number of statements or commands. It's kind of like an interrogation. Paul has shifted kind of from defense to offense. Um, uh, so going from the first two chapters of the book, uh, Paul kind of explaining his actions and behaviors, whether that's Paul's call by God, whether that's Paul being accepted by the apostles, um, and then Paul even opposing Peter, uh, describing the importance and the distinction of justification before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and it seems like Paul's even interaction with Peter kind of lit a fuse underneath the guy because then he launches into this litany of questions related to the Galatians' beliefs. And so we're going to break this passage down this morning kind of verse by verse, uh, question by question, statement by statement. So let's uh, think about the words and phrasing even in the first verse. Read the, let's read the first verse again together. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul literally just referred to the Galatian church as foolish and asking them if they have been bewitched. It could be easy, I think, to maybe gloss over this first part of this, this passage because we want to get right to those good questions. Uh, but let those, those words sink in for a little bit. If you were to be called foolish or if you were to be called bewitched, how would you respond? What would you think? In my marriage, my wife and I often joke with one another that, quote, words mean things. 
Uh, essentially, this inside joke means that we don't say things that we don't mean, and we don't say things that we don't mean to say. Um, and I think about what Paul is saying to the Galatians, um, is, and he's calling them fools. And we may chuckle or sneer at this retort, uh, but I think we all know that at times our own behavior and our own beliefs can sometimes mirror the Galatians. Paul's words are reminding those gospel truths, those gospel beliefs are not to be taken for granted, nor are they to be manipulated by any other man's opinion. Paul doesn't wait to the end of his letter either to, to call them foolish. He, even, he, he, captured, he knows that he has at their peak, he has the peak of their attention right in the middle of this chapter. And Paul even continues, in not just calling them fools, but he has asked, who has bewitched you? It's like when I go talk to my friends or family back in St. Louis and they found out that I'm, I'm watching these Chiefs games with my wife and I go, to these chi- I go to a Chiefs game and they're like, oh, foolish Alex Gandy, who has bewitched you? Why do you think the Chiefs are ever going to win a Super Bowl? Why do you think Patrick Mahomes is really your savior, okay? Um, but I know that the church in Galatia is not like this situation. Okay, it's not exactly the same thing. But at the core, the question is the same. It's important to remind yourself that Paul is rebuking and, and and criticizing and calling them out out of a paternal love, a pastoral love, asking them, um, who are you putting your faith into? What are you putting your faith into and why? And Paul is not calling them out as an arrogant or self-righteous leader, but as a pastor who loves them and desires the best for them. And I'd like to point you to Proverbs 27.6 as we continue to to read through some of Paul's questions. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. Paul's words are meant to point the church back to the gospel. He is being faithful to his Christian brothers and sisters. And despite these questions sometimes coming across as hurtful, they are also meant to heal the wounds of unbelief of those false teachings. And his wounds are not to tear down, but to build up and to wake people up from their sleepy stupor of misunderstanding. Now, and at this point, I think it's funny that we're only one verse in. Paul begins a series of devastatingly logical arguments to prove the gospel is superior to the law. And like a good trial lawyer, Paul asks questions and designs his arguments to force the truth to naturally come out. And I think he clearly missed his calling to go into law. Uh, Lawyers are one of those occupations that I've kind of idolized my entire life. The ability to win over a judge and a jury through facts, through charisma, um, and through compelling arguments. And I'll never forget one summer of middle school, um, <laughs> I got into this habit of watching Matlock pretty much every single day during breakfast. Like, it was just on TV. Okay, we didn't have cable. It was on bunny ears, and so I watched Matlock. My family loved lawyer dramas, uh, whether that was reading John Grisham novels or whether it was ca- uh, like courtroom dramas. If, there were, if we could be entertained by a lawyer, we probably would be. Um, and there was something remarkable about watching this old white-haired lawyer who kind of had this humble and curious spirit take on these crazy cases of murder or theft. And each episode always peaked in some uh, uh, thorough cross-examination of a witness uh, where these questions were pointed and, and were getting the truth out of that witness. And then through eloquent and humble words of, uh, that were triumphant, Matlock would always lay out his closing arguments before the judge and the jury, which always led to a ruling of innocence. The guy like batted a thousand. I can't believe he never lost a case. Um, but I'm not going to sit here and compare Paul to Matlock. I'm not doing that. And we all know that Paul wasn't wearing gray you know, like leisure suits. But <clears throat> Paul knew exactly what truth needed to come out. Paul knew what the questions that needed to be asked of the Galatian church. 
and he wasn't afraid to ask those questions. And the matter of truth that Paul wanted to discuss most prevalently in this passage of Scripture was the matter of faith. Do we ultimately believe about our God and about our status before him? And why? What are the roots of our faith and our belief and our salvation from God? Is our faith rooted in our works or is our faith rooted in the Spirit's work? And that question will be kind of a central theme as we proceed throughout the rest of the scripture. So let's kind of break down these questions in verses 2 through 6. If you turn back with me, if you're in Proverbs, uh, turn back with me into Galatians chapter 3. Starting in verse 2, let's read those through, through verse 6. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? First of all, typical preacher guy, right? He's like, hey, I'm going to ask you one question. And then he asks you five questions, okay? Um, And they're all rhetorical in nature. There's so much depth and breadth to each question. And in order for Paul to lay his, his foundation for his argument, he wants to ask these profound questions of the reader. He wants to ask those profound questions to the Galatian church. And he's ultimately asking those same profound questions to you. How is your faith constructed? What do we believe and how do we believe those things? One of the interesting aspects of these questions is the perspective that I think that it brings us to this morning is that Paul is not appealing to logic or even spiritual foundational uh, principles in this passage. A typical argument by Paul is typically laden with scripture and logic. However, here, Paul is leading us, leading the Galatians, through an argument built from experience. And what I mean by this is Paul is essentially asking, how have religious things happened to you? Did these things happen to you by your own works? Or did these things happen to you by through the working of the Spirit? Paul's appeal then is an appeal to their experience. And from those experiences then refers them to theology about who God is. And the key to understand in Paul's text for us is this, and referring to experiences, is that it's not what the experience was, but what, or maybe we should say who, triggered the experience. So let's get to Paul's first question. Verse 2, he says this, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Each of Paul's questions are personal, challenging the listener, challenging us to think back to our own lives and to our own stories. The specific question leads the reader to reflect on their own personal conversion story. And can you remember your own conversion story? I can vividly remember mine. I was in sixth grade. And, I was just, uh, and our, our small, I went to a really small church, and our small church went to this uh, Christian event at Six Flags St. Louis. Um, and so we were kind of riding rides that evening. And then the evening culminated in this uh, kind of like this, this worship event where there was a worship band. But then in between each song, there was a reenactment of the last moments of someone's life. All right? And you would see them pass, and then you would see them walk up to the pearly gates, and you would see through this reenactment whether or not someone went to heaven or hell. All right? It was quite dramatic. Um, And at the end of the event, a preacher-type guy came out, um, and he gave a really, really short message. But then all he asked is he challenged the crowd, and he said, Hey, look to the person on your left, and just ask them if they're okay. Ask them if they're all right. 
And of course, the person sitting next to my left was my buddy Mike, all right? We were best friends, still a really close friend of mine. And so we, we joked with it like, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? Um, and really did not take it seriously. But then in true like adolescent form, I refused to make eye contact with the person on my right because it was a youth sponsor. It was a youth leader, a guy named David LaForce. And I'll never forget, the obligatory tap on my right shoulder came and I looked up to my right and he looked down at me. And he's like, Alex, are you okay? And I completely lost it. I just started bawling because throughout that, entire, throughout that entire event, I knew that something was stirring in me. I knew that there was this gigantic chasm, this gigantic uh, gap between me and the Father. And I knew that I had not accepted Jesus into my life. And through that moment, the Holy Spirit was inviting me into a relationship, inviting me to accept Christ into, his, into, his, into my life, to be my Savior and to be my everything. And over and over again, I've thought back to that moment when maybe I've been experiencing failure in my Christian life, or maybe that I've experienced difficulty, or I've been questioning, what, what does God really want with me in this time? I thought back to that same experience, because that experience was powerful and it changed my life. But we have also learned that experiences can be deceiving. I'm not trying to say that Paul here is justifying every single experience. He's talking about one very specific experience, your conversion story. Scott McKnight is quoted as saying this, Theology without experience is sterility, while experience without theology is emotionalism. True theology is something that also needs to be experienced, and experiences need to be rooted in sound theology. And that's what Paul is pointing back to the Galatian church. He's trying to remind them of their conversion story, that built within their conversion story is theology about who God is and how he pursues us. So review your own salvation story this morning. Let the evidence of God's grace and God's providence throughout your personal story wash over you right now. How did Jesus capture your attention? How did Jesus pursue you? Was it through someone else? Was it through a circumstance? Was it through a series of events? We need to know that story and we need to know that story well. Moving on to verse 3, it says this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? This verse, Paul is contrasting the Spirit's power to our human flesh. In other words, um, our own human effort. Every Christian duty, such as loving your neighbor, uh, encouraging your friend, honoring a spouse, raising up children, so on and so on, these are works of the Spirit. But the righteousness of the law, which Paul is referring to and hoping to enlighten the Galatian church on, is when we are trying to attain our goal or trying to attain that righteousness all on our own effort. And this is the second time that we hear the word foolish in this passage. The word foolish in this passage is actually comes from the Greek word anoitos. I pronounced that like a million different times, by the way. Um, literally meaning not having a mind. Essentially someone who isn't thinking or they're lacking understanding or they're being irrational. And it's actually the same word in Greek that Jesus used to describe the slow to understand disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you, if you look at Luke chapter 24, uh, verses, verse 25, Jesus says this to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Paul is trying to remind the Galatians that, listen, we don't want you to be slow to understand. We don't want you to be foolish. We want you to believe um, in what you, what you learned as an early Christian. But here's the challenging part about this passage. It's a quick reminder and a blunt reminder to us that we cannot attain perfection in our flesh, that we cannot work towards perfection, we cannot work to understand everything, 
that we are weak, that we weren't even created to attain perfection. And some of you, some of you in this room really, really wrestle with this principle, this idea that we can be perfect or this idea that we can project perfection with others. And within Christian culture, I so often wish that we ourselves were more comfortable and transparent with one another to admit with one another that we're truly kind of dumpster fires in some specific situations of our Christian walk. What if rooted church, and I think I talk about this all the time, that our identity statement is that we are a family of missionary disciples who exist for the good of our cities and the glory of God. How radical would it be if rooted church became a place where we could truly be transparent about where we are struggling, where we are trying to press into our own flesh, where we are trying to press into perfection. Instead, and, and alongside those confessions, we could even encourage one another that help us understand what the cross did for us, how it bridged that gap, how, how Jesus was our substitute. The next question from Paul in verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Remember, this, this diatribe of questions is coming from Paul's fighting against false teachers. He's not just trying to convince the Galatians to not believe the false teachers, but he's also trying to remind them that the persecution that they may have experienced, and we don't know what type of persecution they may have been experiencing from these false teachers, um, but that it's worth it, that going through, um, going through our own uh, personal persecutions, whether that's with friends or neighbors or pu- public perceptions or even internally, that working out, the, working out our specific theology of, of our belief is important, that, that our God is worth it. And then the last question from Paul in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What really makes my heart swell in this verse is the phrase, works miracles among you, which is in Greek can be translated to energio, which means to energize. This word paints a graphic picture for us to understand what Paul is referring to when he describes the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. And Paul uses that word primarily to describe the power source by which every Christian is to serve. And that same word is used in Ephesians. So if you flip the page over with me, just a couple pages down in the New Testament, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 says this, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Again, same word. Or in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or or think, according to the power at work within us. Christian, do you comprehend the power of the Holy Spirit that's within you? Or do you take it for granted? Because most days, maybe you're living out of your own flesh, trying to attain perfection, going through your daily struggles, isolating God from those situations because you want to have that control. The principal idea of this passage has not changed. That do you comprehend the power of the Spirit within you? Or do you take it for granted? The difference between this question and some of the other questions is Paul is asking about the fruit. What life events are we seeing that are transformative? Are those from God or from ourselves? And what do we believe? Because oftentimes those, those experiences that we have throughout our life that are incredibly transformative, we can see that those evidences of God's grace and his power in our life. The church in Galatia was believing that they had to go above and beyond the cross to gain favor with God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt as though you needed to prove something to God? As if he didn't know you already? 
as if he isn't aware of his master plan of salvation and sanctification for you. And even within that plan, God knew that you were going to fail him, that he knew that you were going to screw up. But even though sometimes we do know that, we don't necessarily truly believe it. And that's why Paul is asking all these questions of the Galatian church. That's why he's asking all those same questions to us. So through these questions, Paul is setting the stage for his ultimate retort, for his Matlock-like closing argument regarding faith versus works of the law. He was setting the stage to bring the Galatians back to the Old Testament, back to the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham is an excellent example of the gospel being portrayed in the Old Testament. If I could quickly compare this situation uh, to a courtroom, again, going back to this a lot, but Paul has his prime witness on the stand. It's the Galatian church. And I would also argue that he has us on the witness stand as well. And through his questions, he establishing, uh, he's establishing rational thought. He is challenging us to recall our own experiences, to recall our own history. And he's bringing credibility and common sense to the situation. And while sitting on the stand, hearing these questions, the Holy Spirit is at work in us. The Holy Spirit is at work in the Galatian church, breaking down those, li- those lies and, and mistruths that they've, been, that they've been hearing from the false teachers. But, just like any classic courtroom scene, sometimes the witness is enlightened to the truth, but is not gravitating toward the, the truth as enthusiastically or as energetically or as quickly as the lawyer desi- desires. And so that's when Paul sets the stage. Remember that the first portion of his argument was asking questions regarding, regarding the Galatians' belief and regarding the Galatians' experiences. It was an argument of experience. Now Paul will switch gears, and this is when he starts to bring his point home. He will come back to the tried and true argument of Scripture. Paul will transition from experience argumentation to Scripture argumentation, and he will do it through a history lesson, reminding them of the man that some considered to be the father of God's people. And not simply because of biological reasons, but because of his faithful life. Let's go back to verse 5. And I'll read Galatians 3, 5 through 9. It says this. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. So then those, that who, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The introduction of Abraham in this passage of scripture is important because it is relatable. It makes mistakes. He makes mistakes. But ultimately, Abraham exhibited faith and trust in God. Abraham teaches us that through genuine faith, not the law, that one is counted righteousness, righteous before God. And again, before the, and remember the motivations of the Galatians' deception, that they were fighting against false teachers, that they were trying to be convinced that they had to go above and beyond the cross of Jesus, and that faith had to come through observing the law as well as through Christ's cross. So I think to help to add context to this passage, I'd like to go back to Genesis and kind of read this original exchange. If you go to Genesis chapter 15, we'll read Genesis 15, 1 through 6. It says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, 
as the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A really, thick, a, really, a really quick few details that are important about this scenario. Abraham had done nothing to deserve this privilege. This was grace alone. There were no previous works for Abraham uh, to, to describe or to lean on. There was no application to like God's blessing incorporated. All right? Abraham wasn't scratching down his qualifications on some piece of parchment paper and calling it his gospel-centered resume and saying that out to God, like hoping to get a blessing. Um, God was engaging Abraham on grace alone. And grace is not earned in this situation. Abraham simply believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't do anything. He believed in something. And moreover, I would say he believed in someone. And he, he did this in the face of an outlandish promise, namely that his wife would have a son, and through that son's line, the earth would be blessed. And looking back at our passage in Galatians, Paul's hope is that the church would put their faith in nothing else but Christ. But we all know that faith is not easy. There's a contrast when you engage with someone who is completely operating out of faith in Christ. Oftentimes, it can come across as radical. It can come across as spontaneous, unorganized, chaotic, or unknown. However, when we have faith in our Creator, we don't need those preparatory assurances. We do not need those earthly idols of comfort or clarity. Because we can look heavenward and see our comfort and clarity is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, defeating our sin, defeating our shame, and equipping us with the power to proceed through having faith in God that surpasses all understanding. Don't forget about those verses in Ephesians. And faith is infinitely powerful because it gives God glory, which is the greatest service that, you, that can be provided to him. To give God glory is to believe in him and to regard him as true, as wise, as righteous, as all-knowing, as merciful, as almighty. And in short, to acknowledge him to be the author and giver of all goodness. But I would ask you and I would challenge you, what part of those characteristics do you sometimes stumble over? Where is your heart most vulnerable? Or I also say, where is your heart most guarded? Because some of you in this room if I were to say to you that you have to give God glory because he is merciful, I would really wrestle with that because some of you in this room have experienced some terrible circumstances and those circumstances have led, have, have led your heart to be numb and isolated towards God. But on the, on the other hand, some of you in this room, if I were to say that you need to give God glory because he's the author of your life, you would find that foreign because your life is so programmed and so planned and so organized by your own control that God almost acts as though he's an editor-in-chief of your life, that he reviews your content and he approves, that uh, we plan things and he affirms. But that's not God's role. What Paul is trying to help us understand through Abraham's story is that we need to give full glory to God, to acknowledge in full, without limitation, God's full authority and power in our life, and that we need to be faithful to our creator because he deserves it. Because there in that moment, when we are believing and trusting in God's authority in our life, in his character and in his provision, we will find that peace and security that we're looking for. We will find Jesus. 
God will not point back to our circumstances. He will not point back to our families. He will not point back to our bank accounts. In that moment that we are putting our faith in God, we will see Jesus interceding for us, being our substitute. So I said at the beginning of the sermon that it won't really be like a help me be a better Christian type sermon with a tip or a trick. And you may be thinking to yourself right now, okay, Alex, thank you so much for expanding upon this text. Uh, I appreciate it, but what's the point? Like, how do I become more like Abraham? Or how do I become less like what Paul is preaching to the Galatian church? And I'll try to wrap this up by uh, just letting you know that you probably won't necessarily like my answer. And I'll simply say that I hear you, Christian. I hear you. I know that none of us are perfect. Not even, nobody is perfect. And so does this mean for our own pursuit of our faith? Like as we are wrestling uh, with thoughts of discouragement and confusion, where do we go? So let me remind you, Christian, that you need to have faith and confidence in God. Those things are credited to you because of Jesus. God accepts our imperfect and unholy faith because Christ died on the cross for you. He is your substitute. It is not your works. And Christian, you need to know that righteousness consists of two different things. It consists in faith in God in our own, but it also consists of God crediting you with faith. That we cannot possibly meet God's expectations of faith and righteousness on our own. And yes, as long as we live, sin does live within us. As Christians, we are both righteous as a sinner, both holy and profane. We are an enemy of God and yet a child of God. And this is a constant battle uh, that we struggle to press in having faith. But we are covered in the shadow of God's cross and Christ's cross. We are covered because of his perfect faith, that his perfect union, that, res- that as we wrestle with our, with our fears and with our doubts, that we can look to Jesus as our substitute. So go into this week remembering the following things. Remember how Christ pursued your heart and your mind. Remember your story. Remember how, we, how God sacrificed himself for you by sending his son, Jesus, and providing you a way to be unified with the Father. Remember that the Holy Spirit began a good work in you, and it is not of your own doing, and that God promises to finish that work that he started in you. And remember that the power of the Holy Spirit lives with inside you, Christian, and it will equip and energize you to be able to, to, to walk through some of the, the most difficult times of your life. And lastly, Remember that grace extends to you and grace alone. It is Jesus plus nothing. Scripture and the words of this book, the words of the Bible, they mean something. And God is gracious and merciful to us and he invites us into relationship with him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for uh, your scripture. Um, I thank you that uh, your scripture has um, pointed questions in it to help us remind ourselves of who you are and who we are in you. And I pray that this morning you would clear our minds from distractions, that you would remind us that you have pursued us uh, deeply, that you, you, you love us, and that you, you, you bring us together and you surround, us, you surround us, Lord, with your scripture to help guide us and give us truth. And so I pray that you would, you would transform lives this morning through, through your truth. I pray that, God, that you, would, uh, that you would remind us that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit and that we are not working on our own, but it is that through you, Holy Spirit, that we can be changed um, and that we can have faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.